This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. When Julie Christensen got mad or angry as a child, she would keep it all in and stay quiet. Because I didn't feel like my voice was worthy of being heard, so I never bothered to say anything. Then came the teenage years with all of the social drama. I think I'd recently been informed by my friend group that I was actually not part of the friend group. I was trying too hard to fit in. I was never going to fit in. And so I should just stop trying. This rejection crushed her. I was really mad about it. I was mad about a lot of things, and I didn't have a mechanism for expressing that. And Quiet Julie changed a lot. I swung the pendulum all the way over to the other end. She was managing her high school boys' basketball team at the time, and even a friendly invitation from the players would set her off. They would be like, hey, are you coming to the dance on Friday? And I wasn't allowed to go to dances because I grew up in a very strict household. And I just got tired of trying to explain to people why I wasn't allowed to go. And so then I would just lash out. When she started dating, that anger flared during breakups. It had to be a whole big drama, you know, (laughs) had to be a production because that was the only way I felt that I could be assertive was in this protective armor of aggression. Julie went on to college and studied psychology, but she says she didn't learn much about managing anger. That came later when she got her first job in the field and had to help people work through their rage. She was looking for information and resources, but she felt like she should also try out what she was about to suggest to her clients. So I started kitchen testing all of the exercises and the and the information, and I realized just how much rage I had bottled up in my 20, 21 years and decided that I was going to work through it on my own. And if I felt like it did something for me, then perhaps I could share it with the clients. And that's really how the whole thing started. Julie started to understand how important it is to confront anger and rage. Looking at my emotions and really pinning them down, finding names for them. It's normal to feel angry when you or somebody else has been wronged, mistreated, or hurt. But these feelings can be extremely distracting. When you're super mad, it's hard to think about anything else. Anger and rage can also make you impulsive, and they become destructive, like a red-hot wrecking ball that can ruin careers and relationships. On this episode, anger and rage, and how we can best deal with these emotions. To get started, let's stick with Julie Christensen. She is now a psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada, and her new book is The Rise of Rage, Harnessing the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Julie says people have different ways to deal with anger, and she's given names to various coping styles. She told me about the more common ones. The first would be the bottler style, where you just hold everything in. And you know, we do things because it makes sense to us. And bottling makes sense if you don't want to rock the boat. And just pretend like everything is okay. On the other end of the spectrum is something she calls the scrapper style. I would say that all of us have an element of scrapper inside of us. And the scrapper is the person who takes their anger out on someone or something that can't or won't fight back. So they're the ones that tend to be extremely physical with their expression of anger. And it's very effective in that it gets rid of all of that energy, but it's not so effective in terms of maintaining healthy relationships because it's really hard to trust someone who always acts out and doesn't really think things through. And they're not focused on problem solving. They're just focused on feeling better in the moment. And then I think the third one I would highlight would be the conductor. 
uh, because the conductor is the person who says, oh, I'm just going to go to the gym. I'm just going to I'm going to work it out at the gym. You know, I'll work it out at dance class or I'll go for a run or I'll just clean my house or I'll organize the freezer. Or I'll do something <laughs> that makes me feel better. And that's a good quick fix, but it doesn't solve the problem. Since Julie's book is called The Rise of Rage, I wanted to ask about the difference between anger and rage. She said it's about degrees of emotion. Anger runs on a continuum the same way that happiness or sadness or fear would run on a continuum. And I think we would say the same thing about rage. You know, sometimes we're just irritated, sometimes we're frustrated, sometimes we're mad, sometimes we're furious, and then other times we are in a complete fit of rage. And it just depends on what the stimulus is and how unhappy we are with that situation you know, the degree to which our emotions will intensify and we can call it by that name. And what is happening in my body when I feel that like red hot rage? You know, I almost think of it like <laughs> like the, the mercury rising on a thermometer and then poof, you know, <laughs> something blows. So what is happening in my body when I'm experiencing that? So the first thing that's going to happen is that when your brain receives a signal that a boundary is being violated, a need's not being met, a rule has been broken, or a goal that you're trying to attain is being thwarted, it's going to send what I call a frustration signal to your brain. When your brain receives that frustration signal, it is immediately going to go into what we typically call fight or flight. Um, so your heart rate is going to increase, your blood pressure is going to increase. That's why we feel that sense of heat rising to our yeah. face. That's the blood pressure rising. Our body starts producing more cholesterol, more sugar, a whole bunch of things. A cascade of automatic responses occur. And those send signals to every aspect of the body. So depending on how our bodies are uniquely wired, some people will feel tightness in the chest. They'll feel like a lump in the throat or upset stomach. Their hands will, will start to clench and their teeth will start to clench. And, you know, they may feel extremely hot. Um, and all of that is, it's an uncontrollable response. Your body gets a signal, it does what it's supposed to do. What's your take on the kind of evolutionary purpose of anger and rage? Why is it there? You mentioned fear, you know, and fear alerts us to something. So along those lines, why do we have anger and rage as part of the system? It alerts us to when there's a problem that exists in our, you know, in our sphere. So boundaries violated, needs not met, or expectations not met, rules broken, or trying to attain a goal, and it being thwarted. So we actually see this when children get to be about the age of one, it develops quite early in development, that as a child is trying to do certain things, you know, they're trying to engage their gross motor skills and their fine motor skills, and they can't do it. You know, they're trying to put blocks together or pull blocks apart, and they get frustrated, and then they start to cry. That is one of the early signs that a child understands that they're trying to get something done, and it's not working, and it's frustrating for them. And so you see that angry response. Anger is there to say, you have a problem, <laughs> and that problem needs solving. What we've never learned as humans is how to effectively solve problems. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we instead try to fix the anger instead of trying to solve the problem. We tend to not want to talk about anger and rage so freely. And we we tend to see it as, uh, you know, a, a negative emotion. And when we express our rage, oftentimes you know, there is a bad feeling afterwards, a feeling of shame, or maybe, oh, my God, I really, you know, I got, I raised my voice in this setting, and, and, and people didn't like that. So how come we don't talk about anger as much as we do about the other emotions? I, I can only surmise, I don't have any facts to back this up. But what I what I believe is happening is that if I just look historically at the way that we have conceptualized anger, we've conceptualized it as something that is bad, uh, that it's behavior, you know, anger is not so much what you feel, it's what you do, right. And so if, if you just think about when a child starts acting out, what they're usually told is stop that, 
And if they keep it up, then they get punished. So everything is very behavior based. So what happens because kids are very concrete thinkers, when they're told to stop it, and they're told to go think about what they did, what we're teaching them is that their anger is indeed behavior, and that it's wrong. And the subtext of that is that you are not allowed to feel how you feel. So why would we talk about it? I'm also wondering how much our place in the world, our physical size, and all of those things impacts how we deal with our anger. Because if I'm, let's say, I'm a big dude, then I can be angry, and maybe I can express that anger in a way, and everybody's scared of me, and that's okay. Me growing up as a woman, I learned how to deal with anger. In a way that it wasn't expressed, and you didn't raise your voice, and you didn't get you know loud and annoying, and then there's all these other components in terms of of race and racism that come into play here. So I really, I wonder how much we learn to kind of act in a way that fits with the place we hold in the world. I would say on the surface of it that certainly. Socioeconomic status, gender, race—and I hate to use that word. Let's say ethnicity. All of these things do play a role, and uh, you know, I think part of the reason why it's so hard to express anger in a way that's healthy and safe and appropriate uh, is not just that we haven't been taught how; it's that we haven't been taught that we're deserving of it. Because you know, if you look at the legacy of colonialization and slavery in Indian residential schools, those people who were subjected to that awful treatment and enslavement and beatings and rape and murder and all the rest of it, they were not allowed to be angry about it. Mm-hmm. Right? They were never given permission. They were never given the space. And this is why the Black Lives Matter movement. And Me Too, and all of these other movements are so important because they give disenfranchised people an opportunity to let their voice be heard. As you were talking, I was thinking that anger kind of makes us more adept at living in groups on some level because not only so it kind of balances the individual goals, but then also being perhaps outraged or angry when. Other people are being hurt or mistreated, so it kind of seems almost like if it's harnessed in a productive way, that it makes us better equipped to live in a group. Absolutely, because if we focus on the problems that exist and we use our, you know, our higher order thinking and our ability to communicate in full sentences, we can actually solve those problems, making life easier and better for all. You know, when we look at some of the some of the great change makers in history, what did they do? They identified the problem, they got angry about it enough to actually do something, and then they went out and they engaged people of like mind and said, "Let's work together and let's create a solution for this problem." For people who have spent a lot of time in their lives bottling up anger. How can they get back in touch with that emotion and even know that it's there? You know, because sometimes we get so good at ignoring the little like red flags that go up, <laughs> they all but disappear. Yeah, you know, bottlers survive because they're very good at lying to themselves about what's really happening, and we we have to. And I say we because like I'm a recovering bottler. <laughs> So I understand that we sometimes we just have to face the raw truth of things, even though it's painful. One of the things that I say in therapy a lot, I say it at least three times a week, is that you've got to get comfortable with the uncomfortable things. Get comfortable feeling the discomfort because the growth happens in those uncomfortable spaces. And so, looking at the reality and saying, "Yeah, this happened, and that really hurt, and I did not like the way that felt at all," and I feel like I need to ask for better treatment, or I need to ask for people to to speak to me differently, or I need to go back and and request a refund because that service was terrible, or you know, whatever it is, like just being honest and truthful about those painful experiences 
and honor yourself enough to say, I deserve to be treated differently than this. And I'm, I deserve it enough that I'm willing to ask for it. In her book, Julie says that when we're really mad, we often fly off the handle. You know, we tend to be, as humans, quite reactive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, someone says, you're a blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> and, and off we go. We're off to mm -hmm. the races. And it's just, we're just beaking back and forth. Instead, she says, we need to take a moment, a pause. We need to ask ourselves, what's happening? What does this mean? And how do I feel about it? And what do I really want to see happen here? And how do I achieve that positive outcome? And that's one of the trickiest things for people is to stay quiet until they've processed and evaluated the problem. And I think sometimes, you know, people often say, take a deep breath. And there is a lot of wisdom in that because I feel like just focusing for a moment on taking a breath, it disconnects you from that red hot rage. <laughs> and then yes. you can just insert that pause that you talk about to consider what the appropriate next step is. That's right. The breath does not solve the problem. Mm -hmm. The breath oxygenates your brain so that your frontal lobes can re-engage and start solving the problem. When we feel, you know, that kind of red hot rage that sometimes happens, and we have done the thinking and the pausing and all that, <laughs> but there is still that kind of like residual feeling and we want to let it go. What are some good ways to just get us out of that stage? How about swearing? Well, there's a chapter in the book titled, Maybe Swearing Will Help. And this is one of the <laughs> yes. things that this research that I found, I just thought it was extremely fascinating. What they did was they took two groups. They had a control group and they had the study group. And one group was to put their arms, submerge their forearm in a bucket full of ice. And they had to hold it there for as long as they could, but they were not allowed to swear. Mm. The other group was allowed to swear as much as they needed to. And then they just look to see which group was able to withstand the pain for longer. And it turned out that the students who swore, they were able to keep their arms submerged in the ice for longer than the students that were not allowed to swear. Mm -hmm. So when they started unpacking the research, what they found was that if, if you've got a wicked potty mouth, you will probably not get much of an effect by swearing when you're extremely angry. Yeah, because your brain gets no added benefit, right? It's just what you do. Yeah, it's just what you do. It's just how you talk. It's no big deal. But for people who tend not to have a sweary mouth, when they are impacted by something that is extremely painful, whether that's emotional or physical, and they let a cuss fly, it has a greater effect in terms of mitigating the pain of that experience. How do you encourage people to think about anger and rage, how to see it as just like another emotion, another piece of information, you know, because I think that's really the beginning of, of handling those emotions better. It's just like recognizing them and saying, okay, what's going on here? I would say the first thing you need to remind yourself always is that anger is what you feel. It is not what you do. It's what you feel, not what you do. And so if you can separate what you are feeling from what you are doing, you'll be able to hopefully get a clearer picture of what exactly you were feeling. And then ask yourself, why am I doing this? <laughs> right? Why am I doing this? If this is how I feel, and this is why I feel this way, why am I engaging in this behavior? Because this behavior is actually not going to help me solve the problem that I've just identified. So now if I can think about my long-term outcomes, my desired outcomes, what do I want? I want to stay married. I want to have good relationships with my kids. I want to spend time with my grandchildren. I want to have a safe space in which to work. Whatever those, those big items are that you want, what can you do to achieve that outcome? Right? So if you're having conflict with someone at work, but you want to feel psychologically safe at work... What can you do to solve the problem that is threatening your psychological safety? That's the question that you should be focusing on rather than what can I do so that I don't feel angry and want to throw something across the room right now? 
because that's just a short-term fix. But the, the big problems will still be there. How important is finding some kind of resolution in terms of letting go of anger and rage? You know, if you can't change the circumstances, but maybe there is something else you can do. Can you find forgiveness? If you can't forgive, then is there another way to let go? Yeah, I really believe in both acceptance and forgiveness. I think acceptance is actually the first step because we cannot continue to live in denial as though the hurts that occurred didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is something that I think bottlers are very good at, uh, that, you know, because they're, they're continually using that dialogue of, yeah, but it's fine. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, it's not that big a deal. It, it's not that important. It didn't hurt that bad. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, and so we can't heal if we can't acknowledge what happened. So there has to be a measure of acceptance. And acceptance is not to say that you're okay with it. Acceptance is to say that you understand it happened and you can't change it. And so once you get past the point of acceptance, then if there is something to be forgiven, to do the work of forgiveness, Because if we don't forgive, whenever we think about the harm that was done, our bodies go into that fight or flight mode. And the person who harmed us feels none of that. (laughs) So forgiveness really is for our benefit. When we forgive, what we're saying is I'm letting go of this transgression. I'm not pretending that it didn't happen. Rather, I'm acknowledging that it did happen. And I'm no longer going to hold the debt against this person. I'm going to offer pardon. Julie Christensen is a psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada. Her new book is The Rise of Rage, Harnessing the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Coming up, feeling so mad you want to smash something? There is a place for that. We'll visit a rage room that's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about anger and rage. Our jobs can be a major source for those feelings. Jason Gravel teaches criminal justice at Temple University in Philadelphia. He's passionate about teaching. He wants his students to do well. Last spring, he caught one of his students cheating, using a chatbot to write papers. So he talked to her about it. The student I met with was like, look, it's, it's possible that you know, this happened or, or, or you were under pressure. Just It's fine. Like You get zero on this assignment. Next one, it's not going to be tolerated. And they did it again. And again. 
Jason didn't report the cheating to his department because he didn't want the student to get expelled or have a big mark on her record. But she got a zero on every paper and eventually failed the course. Then Jason got an email. The student had reported him for failing her. Jason couldn't believe his eyes. How dare you report me when I try to do something good for you? It's really infuriating when, you know, it's one thing if they fail and they blame you for it in in student evaluation. It's another if they go through the next step and actually file an official complaint against you. Jason says he was cursing in his office behind closed doors. His whole day was derailed. The university looked into the issue and sided with him. But still, when he would talk about this with colleagues, the anger would come back up. It just makes you a little bit more angry because then you start to think about, oh, yeah, like, that's right. That's, that's an aspect of it I didn't even consider was, you know, wrong or, 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 or screwed up or whatever. Anger can linger and build up. It can rear its head when you don't expect it. So what if you could just let it all out in a safe space? Rage rooms offer that opportunity. They started in Japan during the economic recession in the late 2000s, a place where you can pay to smash stuff, to scream, all while listening to a ragey soundtrack. Now, they are also popular in the U.S., and Marcus Biddle wanted to find out why. After an hour-long road trip on the turnpike, I arrived at Break Stuff, New Jersey, in New Brunswick. And uh, I'm going to go in and try to break up some stuff. Let's do it. And now I'm looking at something resembling an electronic hoarding house from hell. Hundreds of outdated computer monitors, keyboards, vintage television sets, a turntable player. It seemed to be in relatively good shape. I usually recycle my e-waste myself, but I've signed up for a 20-minute rage session to smash it all. Save that for last. It has the best breaking. It breaks. I'm given sledgehammers, metallic baseball bats, crowbars, and golf clubs. Golf clubs, it kind of just like dents it. I try to think about something that made me mad. For example, the traffic I hit on the way here. But I can't seem to muster the appropriate rage. For Break Stuff owner Andrew Powers, rage rooms aren't a place to release anger. There's actually one customer who, who gave a good description of it, because we've always said that you come here to release your anger. And the customer said to us, no, 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 I'm not releasing my anger. I'm engaging with my anger. This is a place, this is a safe space where I can play with it, where I can understand it. Andrew says some people just come in to have fun. Others have serious reasons to want to smash stuff. They've, there's something in their life that they, they need to release. Uh, we've had people who've lost their children, who've lost their spouses, uh, who've you know, lost their jobs right before Christmas. And it's just there's a lot of heartbreak that walks in through the door. At Rage Room Philly, people have made note of what brought them here. Founder Kia Tall shows me a wall where her customers have left testimonials. these kids. She was a teacher. <laughs> she was a teacher. Seventh graders are the worst. These two came together. They were teachers. Kia says teachers are her most loyal customers. Break stuff to practice breaking systems. Paint the stuff. scribbles on the wall tell stories of frustration, broken families, and broken hearts. Kiss my ass. Look at me now. <laughs> the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Okay, I I like that. I know we are an outlet, and I know I do tell people to write what they feel on the wall, Um, but sometimes it's like, oh, man, like, really? But, I mean, I can't let that get to me. I have to. This is how people is feeling, and it's okay. It's okay to express yourselves, and if this is a positive way to do it, I'm all for it. Kia seems like an unlikely hype person for this kind of destruction. I'm actually an introvert at heart. <laughs> very, I'm very, I'm quiet. Well, I like to be anyway. 
Kia opened her rage room in 2018, and she was inspired by her daughter, who was struggling to finish veterinarian school at the time. She did not pass her anatomy test. I think it was twice that she didn't pass it. So she was very frustrated. Feeling frustrated, her daughter blurted out a somewhat odd request to find a place where she could pay money to break a bunch of stuff. I'm looking at her like, you got to be kidding me. Like, who pays to break something? It was just, I know she was frustrated, and that's that's how frustrated she was. So I'm looking like, oh, my goodness. So just off to the side of my own thoughts, like, why would she say that? But Kia searched the Internet. Other rage rooms start popping up, and I'm like, wait, this is a thing. Some people come in for a thrill. Others want to vent. We've had um, therapists come and and bring, like, their clients, and um, the people say they felt much better. We've had people come and say, oh, my therapist referred me because I have so much anger, and I just had to release it, and I think this is it, right? This is cheaper than therapy, and I'm like, okay, okay, but I'm not trying to take their job. Are rage rooms a good place for venting anger? Is this a healthy way to cope? Patrick Markey is a professor of psychology and brain sciences at Villanova University near Philadelphia. I mean, I'm a psychologist. I've been around for 20 years. And there's lots of theories on why you kind of have this, like, why some kind of, like, controlled destruction is, is, is fun to some people. But he says using rage rooms as a form of therapy can be dicey. I'd be a little apprehensive about it as being used as a straight therapeutic technique simply because... If somebody has rage issues, you want to make sure whatever you're doing is probably effective at reducing their rage issues and not either counterproductive or, you know, not doing anything at all. Could rage rooms make people more angry to the point where they want to smash more stuff? Patrick has studied the effects of playing violent video games and says based on that research, he doesn't think so. Video games can achieve the type of catharsis as rage rooms for some people, he says, Playing them doesn't make them angrier or more aggressive. I personally don't think rage rooms are going to actually lower most people's stress or anxiety and so forth. That doesn't matter. The point is that if a person enjoys it, that's what matters. Just like with violent video games, it doesn't matter if a person doesn't see the value in it or doesn't think that they're worth anything or that they're a waste of time. That doesn't matter. What matters is that the individual that's doing it is enjoying it. Michael McCluskey is a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist at Temple University in Philadelphia. He says rage rooms might be problematic for people who are unable to control their anger. His research specifically looks at individuals with intermittent explosive disorder, characterized by bouts of rage, irritability, physical attacks, and self-harm. I use the metaphor of a car. So imagine you have a car. One of those cars where you, the minute you tap on the gas, it goes. And then imagine the brakes don't work very well. You're going to probably get in some crashes. But for everybody else, it can be just a fun way to improve their mood. I don't think going to a rage room is going to necessarily cause them to get way, way, way worse. I just think it's probably not as helpful um, as would be teaching them other ways to kind of express their anger and aggression that doesn't involve breaking shit. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I don't have a major concern about it. I think, you know, smashing something can be fun, especially when, you know, it's okay. And that's the other thing. Aggression is usually, well, the way we think about it, is you're hurting something or someone who does not want that to happen. Here, it's like, yeah, no, perfectly fine. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Honestly, if it works for you and you're happy and it makes you happy and it's not hurting anyone, more power to you. After smashing my way through a bunch of glassware and old computers, I have to agree, I don't think it caused me to work through any anger I might have felt. But it was definitely fun. Oh, yeah. That was good. That was a good move. That story was reported by Marcus Biddle. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
coming up, restaurant workers, flight attendants, people working in stores, they often find themselves on the receiving end of their customers' rage. What do we really know about de-escalating these situations? We didn't really have good recommendations. They wanted some sort of magic things to say, and we didn't have magic things to say. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about anger and rage. You can spend hours online watching videos of customers freaking out, throwing food at restaurant employees, screaming at cashiers, or threatening flight attendants. Shut your mouth! You're not God or my father or my boss! You want to step outside? Huh? I'm not standing, pal. You're actually going to jail. If you're working in customer service or in the restaurant industry, dealing with angry people is often part of the job. This got worse during the pandemic when customer service people had to enforce rules about masking and social distancing. Some businesses offer training on how to de-escalate conflict. But does this work? Alan Yu looked into it. Amy Ward is no stranger to difficult situations. She spent more than 20 years working in the hospitality industry. She's been a dishwasher, a barista, a server, and a bartender. Now she trains hospitality staff on de-escalation techniques. She says people who work in restaurants and bars have to face angry customers every day. When things get heated, she says it's important for workers to stay calm, know where the exits are, stand to the side of the angry customer, and just listen. Tilt their head so they can listen a little bit more, nod their head in agreement. If somebody is upset and like, yeah, it's a really long time, that sounds like it sucks. And she also teaches workers that sometimes they have to speak up for themselves assertively. Sometimes that means speaking in a more authoritative voice. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm going to have to ask you to leave rather than smiley, bubbly and like, yeah, that sounds like it sucks. Uh, You're going to have to leave, though. Like, nobody's going to take me seriously if I sound like that. It's a, a change in tone. She says what they teach in these training sessions come from a mix of experience, self-defense principles and psychology. It's part of a nonprofit organization she runs called Safe Bars. And they also try to personalize the training for the specific restaurants or bar or business. Basically give people enough options so that they can choose appropriately for whatever the situation is. 
Curtis Macmillan was looking for this kind of training and advice back in the 1980s when he took care of patients at a psychiatric hospital. There would typically be a, a patient who was agitated and they're pacing around the room and they're loud. Curtis did not quite know what to do, and he did not want to agitate the patient further. And I'd sit on the ground and they'd be pacing around and I'd be sitting on the ground. But my idea of sitting on the ground was that was the least threatening posture that I could take. He said it worked, but he was just acting on a hunch. He really wanted solid recommendations based on evidence that he could use. He had the same problem at his next job, working with foster parents who had trouble calming down their children when they got upset. We didn't really have good recommendations. They wanted some sort of magic things to say, and we didn't have magic things to say. This problem stayed with him over the years. There did not seem to be any good evidence in terms of what works and what doesn't to calm people down. Curtis became a professor of social work at the University of Chicago, and he decided to study de-escalation. First, he and some collaborators looked up all the different strategies they could find. There were some unusual ones. Some of them are like, offer a soda. You're a human being and you're treating them like another human being. Another one was offered to pray with the person. The justification on the article was pretty clever, which was that if you're a prayerful person, you calm yourself down in order to pray. But by and large, de-escalation experts and people in customer service industries had settled on some common themes when it comes to what to do. And it's along the lines of what Amy and SafeBars teaches. Stay calm and confident. Don't corner people. Try to understand why someone is upset. Try to solve the problem together. The most interesting thing about the de-escalation literature is that there is a ton of recommendations and some consensus around the recommendations, but almost no research. Curtis decided to design an experiment. A few years ago, he tested one common bit of advice that de-escalation experts give, validate what the upset person is saying. He and his team gathered some study participants online and measured their baseline, how good they are at regulating their emotions. Then participants listened to a story that could make them upset. It feels good to have money in the bank. After years of working hard, you finally paid down your credit cards. They're out for lunch with a friend after putting money in their bank account. Their card is declined. Your friend hands the server a card to pay for the meal. Your friend asks if you're in trouble with money again. No, I'm not. You say, I'm good. I'll pay you back. They find out there are charges on the credit card that they did not make. They get on the phone with their bank, enter their account number, but keep having to enter it again and again. Please enter your debit card or account number followed by the pound key. Again? I've already entered it twice. But you enter it again. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Please enter your debit card or account number followed by the pound key. After a few minutes of entering the account number, going through every purchase they've put on their credit card recently, and answering security questions, they get through to a real person at the bank. Then some study participants heard this message. Our automated system is pretty straightforward. We must not have followed the direction. Others heard this one. I would like to help you, but first, I need you to speak slower and lower your voice. And others heard this one, validating the experience. Oh, that is so frustrating. Our system clearly was not working at an appropriate level, and you had to suffer through it while you were already worried about someone using your debit card and racking up charges. I probably would have hung up the phone. It was good of you to hang in there and stay on the line. Would people feel more or less calm depending on which message they heard? For people who came into the study already being better at regulating their emotions, the message that validated their experience did calm them down. But for participants who have trouble regulating their emotions, the de-escalation did not work. So, in other words, the validation only calmed down the people who were better at staying calm anyway. 
but it did not do anything for the people who would be more likely to get angry. So it was kind of the opposite of what we had hoped. And then Curtis ran the experiment again, but this time it was inconclusive. He has yet to publish the findings. So the research still does not point to anything that people can say to de-escalate the situation. Curtis says he's about at the end of his academic career. And he says even if someone else wanted to keep pursuing this research question, they have one thing working against them. One of the reasons why the research has not accumulated in this area, despite lots of interest, is that it's unethical to make somebody super upset so you can try out different de-escalation strategies with them. And so, in the meantime, he says there are still experts and organizations who will train people on how to de-escalate conflict. But people will have to more or less take their word for it that it works. That story was reported by Alan Yu. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about anger and rage. If you're a parent or you've spent time around little kids, you have definitely heard something like this. No, I don't want that. You need a timeout. No, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. We're going to do a timeout. No, I don't want that. Nobody can quite rage like toddlers. Crying, yelling, kicking. Children throwing themselves on the floor, um, the limp body on the floor, hitting, flailing arms, sometimes biting. That's psychologist Allison Zisser-Nathanson. She's section director for behavior regulation at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She says toddlers want to assert their independence. While language and emotion regulation are still very much in development, Very young children have big feelings and often lack the words to express those feelings in a helpful way. What fuels the rage? Being tired or hungry, not getting their way, feeling frustrated. I don't want to. But I think it'll calm you down. No. Please. No. This is Pulse producer Lindsay Lazarski with her two-year-old daughter. No. No, 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 no. One of the favorite books they like to read is called When Sophie Gets Angry. Really, really angry. Sophie was busy playing when... My turn! Her sister grabbed Gorilla. No, said Sophie. Yes, said her mother. It's her turn now. In the book, Sophie gets mad at her sister who snatches a toy away from her and then Sophie trips over a truck. Oh, is Sophie ever angry now? She kicks, she screams, she wants to smash the world to smithereens. She roars a red, red, roar! Illustrator and author Molly Bang wrote this book. It's based in part on true events. My daughter got angry often, and there were no books about children, about little girls getting angry. So I had gotten angry an awful lot when I was a kid, and I knew lots of little girls who got angry, but there were no books that showed it, that accepted it, that figured out what might be done about it or with it or how to help children through it. So I thought, well, why don't I try to do this? Sophie runs off into the woods. She cries. She climbs an old beech tree, watches the ocean waves, and she calms down. Eventually, she goes home and everything is better. Her family is so happy she's back. For Molly, that's an important message. We love you angry, we love you when you're calm, we love you the whole time. Psychologist Allison Zisser-Nathanson says it's really important to give toddlers space when they are mad. Take time to calm down. She says it's also important for parents to model labeling their own emotions. So, for example, oh, I'm frustrated I forgot to pick up milk when we were in the grocery store and to try their best to stay calm when their kid is freaking out. 
And so we encourage parents to take that deep breath, even lower their voice, soften their voice, and to label, I see you're mad. I see you're frustrated. The parent might even say, I'm going to take a deep breath. And what that's doing, even if the child doesn't follow along, you are giving an example and teaching through that modeling how to bring the intensity of that emotional experience to a more manageable level. Rage often strikes when toddlers have to switch from one activity to another. It can be hard to transition from one situation to the next. Shifting is so difficult, especially when you're shifting from a more enjoyable situation to a less enjoyable situation, like ending screen time to get dressed. I told Allison about something my kid's preschool teacher always said to them when they were about to wrap up one activity and start something else. She would say, prepare to feel finished, which I still sometimes say to my kids now. Allison liked that. She says having a plan is really helpful for toddlers. Oh, 100%. To have a transition warning, like two more minutes of your TV program and then it's time to get dressed, then that helps the child prepare and and organize themselves in that in, in two minutes, I am going to be asked to leave this situation and move into a new situation. And then they'll say, two more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that can yes. happen. That can happen. It happens. All right, time to go upstairs. Put your toys away. I have two more minutes. Two more minutes. Allison Zisser Nathanson is a psychologist and section director for behavior regulation at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They have two more That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Jaden George is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.